gentlemen. Uh... Can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Hey, so it's Friday, August 20. I am sitting in my rental car in the parking lot of uh, West West Marine, the, the, the nautical supply chain um, in Newport Beach. And uh, uh, my daughter is still up in the hotel room sleeping. My wife is working on a project, and which is unusual because she should normally be asleep this hour. It is early in the morning, and um, I'm just checking in. Um, where to begin? So, I mean, I feel like nobody is dying to know what my position on Afghanistan is at this point, if you've been paying attention to what my position is on Afghanistan. Um, I guess we can talk about a little of that stuff later, but I figured I'd start with something else. So that way, if you are interested in the Afghanistan thing, um, and some uh, grief I've been getting and, and some airing of grievances for me, stick around. But let's sort of start someplace else, I guess. Um, yeah, so I'm in California. I gotta say, I still really like California. Obviously, I hate the politics of the place. There's all sorts of things about the culture I can't stand. Um, but I also think saying the culture in California is a little bit misleading. Sure, there is a California culture, but there's also like a France culture. And um, and that doesn't mean there aren't subcultures within it. And California is is in many ways really like its own country. It's big enough to be its own country, both economically and population-wise certainly geographically. And, um, I don't know. I mean, every time I come here, I'm like, why don't, you know, why don't I live here? Of course I visit the parts that, um, for the most part that have wonderful weather. Um, I'm not, you know, I've been to death Valley, but I don't always say, Hey, why don't we live here when I visit death Valley? Um, I will say it's kind of amazing. I thought the smell of weed was getting bad and DC, but I mean, literally from the moment I walked outside of LAX, I could smell weed. And when I got my rental car, which was an unbelievable fecal festival at LAX, um, uh, I joke about how it would seem like people were, it was like refugees storming rental counters, but, um, it's probably too close to real events to make those kinds of jokes, but it was unbelievable. Um, when the shuttle pulled up, you know, the Hertz, um, Hertz, uh, I guess owns thrifty and dollar, or at least the very least they share, uh, the same, uh, building at LAX. And I do think that most of these rental car companies are basically fronts for like two big rental car companies, but I haven't looked into that. Um, but anyway, Hertz was a little bit more expensive and I picked it in part because, um, I thought they would be faster about expediting things because they are a little bit more expensive and they, they're, you know, a slightly better rental car company than those places. And so it was an interesting sort of natural experiment about how 
just the slight difference in price between Hertz, Dollar, and Thrifty um, yielded such remarkably different results. Um, the line for Hertz was two hours long, two and a half hours long, something like that. Air, un, basically, an un, air conditioned building. Um, I had to wait in an hour long line to um, wait in an hour long line to then wait in a half hour long line. And, um, uh, but the dollar and thrifty line was as best I could tell four hours, four and a half hours. It literally snaked around, snaked, took up the same space indoors and then snaked around the entire building outside. And one of the great frustrations I had is that they actually had a lot more ticket agents dealing with the thrifty people than they had dealing with the Hertz people. But it did seem to me like a really good small anecdotal example of how sort of labor force issues and supply chain issues are really messing stuff up um, still because of the COVID thing and the uh, unemployment insurance stuff. Um, anyway, back to California. Um, we're out here because my daughter is going to go to school out here. I'd rather not say where. Um, and, uh, it's a very bittersweet time. You know, we've been doing these family traveling things together while, you know, I work a little on the road. My wife works a little on the road since she was, since before she was born, but really since she was born, our big trip, the big drive, the drive I'm most proud to have accomplished with my wife, um, where we flew to Fairbanks with Cosmo, the wonder dog, greatest dog who ever lived or ever will live. And, um, uh, for a party the year after we got married and, um, my father-in-law gave us his 10 year old caddy because we needed a second car as sort of a belated wedding present, anniversary present, grandpa present, whatever. And my wife was pregnant at the time with Lucy and we drove that caddy back from Fairbanks to DC. We, um, and we even took, and I'm not kidding the long route because, uh, we decided we wanted to cross at the highest U S Canada border in the United States. And that meant actually kind of going, I can't remember if it was like North of Fairbanks or if just, it was the Northern route, which takes you through like chicken, Alaska, and eventually to, uh, what is it? Whitehorse in Canada and you drive on the Alcan. And anyway, we've been doing these drives for a very, 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 very long time. And we didn't drive out here this time, but it feels like we did. And, um, we were going to, but we had family, my daughter had stuff she wanted to stick around in DC for. And anyway, the melancholy, bittersweet stuff isn't about vacations. It's about my kid going away. And, um, I'm incredibly proud of her and, um, and I know she's going to have a great time in college, but this whole sort of empty nester thing really snuck up on my wife and I, um, we, uh, we've done very little planning about it. We've done very, put very little thought into it. I mean, it really does feel like it wouldn't be weird for my wife to tell me to go get more diapers or formula for Lucy. This feels like it happened so fast. And, um, anyway, I don't want to get all verklempt. That wasn't the point of getting into all of this. Um, 
But it's funny, you know, as we have young staffers are starting to have babies and at the dispatch, we are wildly pro baby. I mean, it's like literally when people interview with us, it is our standard response about how we feel about like work-life balance and maternity leave and all of those kinds of things is we just, we're just like, look, we are pro baby here. Um, we like babies. Babies are good. Um, and, um, having a baby or taking care of a baby is always a good excuse for why you couldn't get something done. And, um, uh, within reason, I just, in case some of the staff are listening, but we are wildly pro baby. That part is definitely true. And, um, and so I find myself telling people, you know, who have, um, new humans in their house that, uh, someone, I wish I could remember who, but someone told me when we first had Lucy 18 years ago, um, get ready for long days and short years. And it's really true. Um, the, it goes by. I mean, the days really can be very, very, very long, but the years are unbelievably short. And, you know, and one of the things I find as sort of a tell about that is when I have conversations with Lucy about my daughter, about things she remembers or is mad about or thing, fun things we did together, it doesn't really matter. Every now and then, you know, she'll be like, dad, that was eight years ago. Or dad, I was in second grade. And for me, it's, it's just a blur. I mean, it's just, it's all Lucy. And, um, it's a little bit like, and I, I often tell this to like kids who just graduate from college who, um, you know, come to AI or, you know, national review or now the dispatch, um, or just in Washington in general. When I first moved to DC, um, I had a roommate who was in his late twenties. I lived in the Envoy across from Meridian Hill Park, also known as Malcolm X Park on 16th street in DC. And, uh, anyway, this guy had been, you know, had gotten a master's and been living in DC for a while. And he told me, he was like, you know how in grade school and high school and in college, your year has your, your life has these really big sort of page breaks or punctuation marks. You know, the difference between ninth grade and 10th grade is huge in your life. The difference between freshman and sophomore year of college is huge in your life. The difference between high school and college is huge in your life. You know, you have these major sort of benchmarks that, you know, are notches that you can sort of put down that, you know, delineate major chapters in your life. And he says, yeah, the second you get out of college, you know, that really just all goes away. And like, if you ask me something, he was like, if you ask me something about what grade I was in it, when something important happened to me when I was like 15 or 16, I could tell you, but like things that happened to me when I was 23 versus when I was 26, couldn't possibly tell you how old I was. It just all kind of merges together. And I think that's at least in my experience and the experience of some of my friends, that's, that remains true sort of for the rest of your life in a way. Um, you kind of, you know, the, world kind of becomes in, instead of a ladder, it kind of becomes a flat space that you're working in and time just unfolds differently. And, um, and so anyway, that's just a meditation on how, um, you know, how this is this new chapter, maybe that will change in the, um, post, uh, post child in the house, uh, 
lifestyle for my wife and I, um, we'll see what that does. We are actively talking about getting one of those like a sprinter, small RV things to just live our lives on the road, which we like doing so much. Of course, you have to get those things customed and, you know, you have to figure out the money and that's not, that's hard. That part's hard, but, um, you know, we kind of like the idea of just being on the road with our dogs. Um, and the Wi-Fi and tech stuff has gotten so good. I can do a lot of what I do on the road. All right. So I'm not gonna be writing a G file today. I did write a review of a movie, sort of a review of a movie. Uh, I saw last week, it'll be, you know, unless Alec Dent tells me, you know, very politely since he works for me, uh, that it's terrible and he can't run it or can't fix it. It should be up by the time this is out. So I, I saw this movie called nine days and, um, I'm going to do a little bit of a spoiler thing. I don't think it's going to be in the theater very much longer. Um, and it's certainly a spoiler for my, my, the piece I wrote for the dispatch, but I think it kind of perversely ties into some of this stuff. Um, so the premise of the movie is, uh, I think kind of brilliant. It's a little aggressive in its premise. Um, but basically it, it, when I say aggressive, it means it, 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 it asks for a, a considerable amount of suspension of disbelief. But that, you know, in the age of superhero movies, if you can't bring that to the theater, what's wrong with you? And moreover, you know, the key thing about suspension of disbelief, which I do write quite a bit about in Suicide of the West, it's a romantic term. Um, but uh, the key thing for some suspension of disbelief when it comes to movies is that the filmmaker just owes it to you not to take your goodwill for granted and not to play with it. And, um, and, and in this, they don't do anything like that. It's a really, it's a lovely, brilliant movie in my opinion. Um, and, uh, um, anyway, so the premise is there's this guy, um, played by um, Winston Duke, who was the, um, the outlier warlord guy who lived up in the mountains um, in the Black Panther movie. And um, anyway, Winston Duke plays essentially this weird kind of hermit bureaucrat living in um, this little bungalow kind of house in the middle of the desert and it turns out that he is in fact a kind of celestial bureaucrat and he lives in a realm which you know in philosophy you would call the realm of pre-existence going back to things like plato where uh he's an interviewer he's like a college admissions officer for souls that want to enter uh, babies in the womb and become human beings. And, um, and he's not alone. It turns out that this is, this is the process. This is how we all, according to the movie, how we all got into our bodies is that somewhere outside of normal space and time, there exists a realm where these beings, these interviewers, as they call them in the movie, um, interview want, you know, souls 
who um, want to live a life as a human being on Earth. And like, so uh, the character's name is Will. I'll just keep calling him Will. You know, Will tells each of the, after something happens to one of his, one of the souls he had selected in the past, um, that, you know, he, he monitors and there's this whole trippy thing. There's a little bit like being John Malkovich, um, about this movie. And that makes some sense. Cause, uh, I think Spike Jones is one of the executive producers. Um, but it like, in terms of set and cinematography, it's really got a confident look and feel and voice. And so, I mean, uh, this investigator guy, what he does is he's when he's not selecting souls, which is what he does most of the time, which, which, which is what he usually isn't doing. Um, he sits in his little sort of bungalow house watching a wall full of TVs, like old, like 80s, mid 80s television sets um, stacked high on top of each other, filling up a whole wall where he is recording using VHS tapes the lives of the people he of the souls he's sent down to earth and um the what's on the tv sets is what the what these humans see through their own eyes so when their eyes are closed there's nothing on the screen when one of these humans dies the tv goes back to one of those old color test patterns you know they're um and um um, anyway, so when one of his souls dies, uh, Will is visited by a string of, of what looked to the audience, just like people, like adult people. Turns out that they're only like either seconds or minutes old, um, who live in this realm and they all want to apply for the ability to what, what, what what Will says is the amazing opportunity of life. And, um, and it's a, there's a lot of philosophy in this thing. Um, though I don't know that you need to, I'm sure I missed a lot, you know, um, like I'm not very good on Walt Whitman and, you know, you don't get, you don't realize how much Walt Whitman you're getting until the end. But, uh, you know, there's definitely a lot of like Sartre and existentialism in here. And again, like the Plato, the preexistence thing, it's a very old idea. It's found in some religions. And um, I don't want to belabor or, or offer too many spoilers, but it's, it's, it's really an interesting and intellectually playful movie because um, part of what will, part of what makes this, you know, I, I don't think he was, I, I don't think he's cursed, right? I don't think this is his hell. Um, for Will, but like one of the key things for each investigator in, in this nine days universe is that you have to have been alive yourself. Uh, you have to have been on earth, lived as a human being and died. And, um, it's not obvious to me that the other interviewers have the same baggage and issues that Will does or why they were picked or anything. I mean, it leaves a lot of things to your own imagination, but it's, um, one of the themes of the movies, it turns out that will the reason, one of the reasons why he is so dedicated to his work is that 
he's got a lot of regrets about how he wasted his time on earth or, or didn't fit in and, and all that. And, um, it's an interesting, you know, it, the movie, if you watch it in good faith and like it, I can see why people, some people wouldn't like it, but if you watch it in good faith and like it, it does cause you a lot of introspection about how am I living my life the right way? Am I making the most of it? All of these kinds of things. And, um, I can see how some people think it's incredibly uplifting while other people might take away from it. Oh my God, I've wasted so much time and so many opportunities, yada, yada, yada. I think it's kind of open-ended like that. What, you know, it's sort of like a, what William James says, like a, a box with the lid off, um, in terms of its interpretations. But, um, Anyway, the, the philosophical thing, the reason why I want, I heard a really interesting review of it on public radio by Bob Mandela. And the thing it made me think of was John Rawls and the original position. And so I wanted to see it, um, cause I'm, cause I'm fascinated with the original position stuff. And, um, it's not really, um, like Rawls but it's close enough for the, what, for the point I want to make. So first of all, I should explain what the original position is. The original position, I mean, I've talked about it on here a bunch of times. It's where this phrase, the veil of ignorance comes from. Um, the original position holds that it's just, just this idea that Rawls put forward where the, um, that you imagine yourself in a pre-existence realm, some sort of limbo outside the fishbowl of our reality where you are essentially a disembodied soul awaiting an opportunity to, um, live as a human being on earth. And so Rawls offers this mental exercise, this thought experiment by way of thinking about how we organize politics. And his basic point is let's imagine that you are one of these souls, right? And you're in this waiting cosmic waiting room and you're said you get to live on earth at any time and in any place on earth, but you don't get to choose. It's a total lottery. You might get born in Bhutan in the 12th century, or you might get born in Newport beach in on August 20, 2021. And you don't know if you're going to be born white or black gay or straight, tall, short, fast, slow, brilliant, dumb, or anything or any combination of all of those things in between handicapped, not handicapped. And, um, and so the question is what kind of system would you want society to have, right? What kind of political, cultural, legal system would you want them to have? If you thought there was a better than decent shot that you might be born a slave, you probably wouldn't want there to be slavery at all, right? Because you don't know, you know, I mean, this is, this is what they, at, at TV Tropes is one of these things they call uh, the original position fallacy in TV. You know, someone wants to, uh, you know, someone advocates for revolution or uh, some sort of total social transformation. and. Um, uh, and then of course they discover that the system that they 
advocated for screws them, right? It's kind of like reincarnation. No one ever talks about how in a past life they were a dim-witted scullery maid who got beaten three times a day and died an early and painful death. They always think, oh, no, in a past life, I was a princess. In a past life, I was a wizard. In a past life, right? That kind of thing. Similarly, it's like um, um, in, in, you know, the, the sort of bohemian intellectuals who constantly talk about how in America, in American late capitalism, it's, you know, it's so much worse than the way it would be in Sweden or the way they do things in France and or the way things were in the 1920s and the left bank and all this kind of stuff. And they always imagine that they, they would be a, you know, highly honored intellectual smoking Galois cigarettes and, you know, and drinking white wine in a cafe rather than, you know, maybe the, you know, the guy cleaning up after <laughs> the honored intellectual um, and un- unclogging the toilet after the intellectual was done with it. Um, and so, you know, the original, back to the philosophy, the, uh, the thing about the original position is, is like, if you don't know what kind of person you're going to be, you want the fairest system possible. If you knew you're going to be a tremendous athlete or a mighty warrior or a mathematical genius, and you were motivated purely by self-interest, you might, you know, prefer one kind of society. Um, if you knew you were going to be, um, you know, a slow witted club footed guy with a cleft palate and a unibrow, uh, you might want a different kind of society. So it's, it's an interesting thought experiment for figuring out how to both hedge risk in a sort of profound metaphysical social justice sense, while also providing opportunity, because what you want also is a system that just doesn't coddle the unfortunate. It also provides opportunities for everybody to live their best lives, to fulfill themselves in the best way possible, to find meaning and, 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 and fulfillment and joy in life. And, uh, and so in some ways there's really no one right answer. It's all about in some ways hedging risk more than it is about maximizing everything. But I think it's a very useful way of thinking about things. This is not what you have in, in nine days In nine days, the souls who are applying, um, for the opportunity to live. And if they don't get it right, if they don't get picked by will, they go back into nothingness. This is everything for them. And um, they get a glimpse of what the real world is like. They, get, they actually spend like most of the nine days sitting in Will's living room, um, watching the lives of actual human beings unfold through their eyes on the TVs. They, they get a sense of what the real world is like. They're informed about the real world. They're asked questions about how they would respond to things in the real world. And they still want to go down there and, um, um, and they still want to take their shot, whatever it is. Um, however, you know, whatever their circumstances might be. And, but it does raise, you know, a really important point about, um, I'll put it this way. It raises one of my two main objections with the original position and, and the, the Rawlsian approach. Again, I think it's a fairly brilliant thing. And I think it's a great thing for a philosopher to have written to get people to think about 
particularly in philosophy classes. Um, uh, and I think Rawls would admit it's, it's, it's wasn't the original position wasn't all that original to him. It seemed to, I, I'm pretty sure that in, it's been a long time since I read it, but he, you know, he invokes, uh, James Harrington who had the, f uh, a somewhat similar philosophical game where he talked about when you cut a pie and, you know, the way you kind of apply a original position kind of heuristic to everyday life. He says, you have two people and they each get half the pie. What you do is you have the other, you have one person cut the pie and then the other per the person who doesn't cut the pie gets to choose which slice they want. So it's in the interest of the cutter to cut as equitably and as fairly as possible on the assumption that the other person is going to apply their own self-interest and pick the bigger piece. So if you ha don't have if a bigger piece, if they're equal pieces, everything works out. And this is a way to sort of, I just bring this up because there are, it, one of the things that's useful about the original position is it helps you think about, you know, how you would want to organize society in the most fair way possible that isn't necessarily unfair to the advantage. I mean, this is something that is very difficult to talk about in our culture today, but you know, it is possible to be unfair to the rich. It is, it is possible to be unfair to the beautiful and the, the successful. Um, that's why, you know, the law in very much a sort of Harrington Rawls kind of way is supposed to be blind to your station. Um, if you read the Supreme court oath, you know, it, it's, you're not supposed to give, you know, uh, favor or bias towards people on account of their status in life, whether they're rich or poor and all the rest. Um, anyway, so I think it's a useful thing, but my two big problems are one, the original position is very much a, um, an example of one of the things that drives me crazy about sort of the progressive approach, approach to politics in general, which is that it starts from the assumption that they can design a society from scratch, right? They basically put themselves, and again, this is a broad brush, you know, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, if you're talking about Marx, you're talking about, um, you know, Rawls, you're talking about a lot of the progressives of the 20th century. Um, they put themselves in a position of thinking that forget human beings being a blank slate, which they often believe, uh, they think you can treat society like a blank slate and just, you know, shake the etch-a-sketch and redesign it at will. And this very much, I think, gets to the sort of worldview that the progressive, that there's a part of the progressive or the Marxist or whatever you want to call it, mindset, that sees the state as the stand-in for God. And it should do the things that they think God should do if God existed in terms of delivering social justice, reorganizing society in the most optimal way, you know, ushering in the, 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 a world where the meek, um, get to actually inherit the earth. Uh, part of it has to do, so part of my problem with the original position, even though again, it's, it's, it's fine on its own merits, but it's reflective of this tendency of any, in, in, of, of progressives thinking that they can treat society like so many Lincoln logs and just 
tear it down and rebuild constructively without any doing lasting damage. And I don't attribute that attitude to Rawls himself, but I've been in enough debates with liberals where they invoke Rawls as if it's an answer to my objections about stuff when I have to point out that like, like even if, even if the greatest social planners and progressive intellectuals were absolutely right about the best way to organize society, they would still have an terribly difficult time organizing society that way because, um, you know, society's built up around existing institutions, um, uh, existing ecosystems and tearing them down and replacing them with something that is rationally better or better on paper, um, is foolhardy. And let's not talk about Chesterton's fence. And then there's the other problem I have with the original position. And in this, I do ascribe somewhat to Rawl, you know, I, I do consider a criticism of Rawls personally is the question of abortion. Now we talked, I talked about abortion on here a while back. You can go back and listen to it. We'll link to it in the show notes. I don't want to like restate my whole position on abortion. It's, it's more complicated than my friends and my enemies alike would like. Um, but uh, all things being equal, I consider myself, you know, pro-life, um, but not for the reasons that a lot of pro-lifers are pro-life. And, um, the problem with the original position is if you were one of those souls, right? Looking down on earth, you don't know if you're going to be born, you know, gay or straight or, or, or healthy or sick or, um, rich or poor or black or white, or if you're one of the souls in, um, in nine days, right? You don't know the circumstances of what, how your opportunity for life is going to manifest itself. But the one thing that all of these people, all these souls, all these entities would want in the first place is to be alive, to actually be born, to give it, to be given the opportunity to realize however imperfectly their own potential and their own aspirations. And I wrote about this when that Kermit Gosnell horror um, was revealed a few years ago. I, I, I made this point about how, you know, this is my problem with the original position is that none of those applicants, none of them would want to have their last glimpse, their first and last glimpse of life to be Kermit Gosnell and his, his pruning shears, as it were. I don't want to get too gross here. Um, but you get the point. And, um, and Rawls, it's my understanding, understood this tension and nonetheless sort of abandoned the original position when it came to the issue of abortion. And, um, Again, I get why, particularly for progressives and liberals, you know, abortion is complicated. And I bet you someone has tried to create a, you know, original position, veil of ignorance 2.0 thing where they explain how the souls would want to be born into a society where they were able to abort um, unwanted pregnancies. Uh, you know, I don't find it persuasive, but whatever, you know, I, I get it. It's complicated. But if you're going to invest so much in this premise and then abandon it, at the most obvious negation of it, um, I just find I have I have real problems with, and that was the thing that I I sort of one of the things I took away from this movie that I think is important on a bunch of levels. One is you know the one thing 
everyone is supposed to take from this movie is that life is this precious opportunity. You should be grateful for it. Even if it just means, even if you just spent your life smelling flowers and picking fruit and enjoying the sensations of, of daily life, this movie is pretty good at saying how, you know, we take so much of that stuff for granted. But then you add in the joys of marriage, of having kids, of, of, of making a contribution to society, of, you know, one of the things they emphasize in this, which I think is really, really interesting, is, you know, how some souls just crave to be or have comradeship with other people and be around other people and have the joys of fellowship. Um, I think, you know, you're supposed to take all that away from this movie. And, um, as I, and this is a spoiler for my piece, but, you know, I ask, imagine if in test audiences, the winner of this selection process, you know, opens its eyes in the womb. And then the next thing it sees is, um, you know, the scalpel or whatever the tool is for the abortion coming in. You know, I, my sense is, is that the audience, a test audience would riot at something like that. And, and so I, I don't want to belabor this on the issue of abortion itself, but I, I think this is important for another reason. And something I've talked about a bunch is I think that both the right and the left, the way we take lessons from movies and are, I should say from pop culture is too constrained and too, um, black and white. Right. I mean, this is why a lot of efforts for conservative movies and right wing Hollywood stuff suck is because they think that they have to be so ham fisted and so didactic where they're like, and here is the moral, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and it, there's a certain amount of sort of own the libs ism to some of that stuff where. Um, it just, it feels like you're watching something that was made for political purposes rather than made for entertainment purposes. And I mean, entertainment in the, in the broadest way to include artistic purposes. And, um, you know, and that's why there are these, and, 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 and the left has very similar problems. The problem though, is that in Hollywood, at least most of the really good filmmakers are really good filmmakers first and, and TV show makers and all the rest. And so if they slip in politics every now and then they can do it artfully and no one will stop them because the way the group think works, that's okay. But if you try to sneak in right-wing politics, it has to, it comes across as more deliberate in part because it has to be more deliberate. And, um, but if you take a step back and you realize that a lot of stuff in popular culture is first and foremost about, you know, not to get too grandiose, the human condition, right? About, you know, the stuff that we can connect with as people, as human beings, um, you know, so much of comedy is about, uh, finding these, these observations and these connections that we all share and have trouble processing. And then someone says, do you ever notice? And they make these connections. And that's one of the reasons why you get laughter is it relieves this, this dissonance or this tension in us that we thought we were the only ones who saw something or thought something was weird. And then we find out that it is actually a, a, something of shared 
human experience. And that's, and one of the responses to that is laughter. I mean, that's literally like where laughter comes from in a lot of cases. I think laughter is a fascinating concept when you try to start parsing what it means philosophically and psychologically. And, um, and so you have, you know, there are lots of conservative messages, maybe not Republican messages, maybe not low tax cuts, you know, low tax rates kind of messages. Oh, there is some of that, um, in, in popular culture. Um, but because it's not hammered over our heads and they don't hang a neon sign on it saying, look, right wing point, a lot of right wingers miss it and a lot of left wingers miss it. And, you know, the thing I've talked about often actually is on this is like abortion. It is very difficult to have a sitcom character get pregnant and because it and and then say, well, I'm actually going to abort it. And they try to do, quote unquote, funny abortion comedies every now and then. And they either are almost they're almost always either total failures or really niche art house things. But if you're talking about like things like Friends or Big Bang Theory or any of these kinds of shows, no one says for the most part, oh, they're pregnant. It's like Chekhov's gun, right? If you introduce the gun in the first act, you got to use it in the third act. If you introduce the idea that the character is pregnant, no one wants to hear that Rachel's getting abortion, right? Uh, no one wants to hear that Bernadette uh, Wallowitz's girlfriend and uh, wife in Big Bang Theory is going to get an abortion. And so sometimes they have to do the uh, left-wing uh, orthodoxy stuff of talk about their choice and say, I don't know what I'm going to do and blah, 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 blah. Sometimes they don't but they have the baby. And the second they decide to have the baby long before it's born, just the mere act of, of deciding that they're going to keep the baby, it becomes a human being. And they talk about it like a human being and they protect it like it's a human being. It's a very pro-life message. Whatever you think about what the constitutionality or the, or the public policy stuff should be about abortion, that messaging is very effective, very real pro-life stuff because it actually reflects where most human beings are, including most pro-choice women. You know, I mean, don't get on the wrong side of a pro-choice pregnant woman who's decided to keep their baby about the health of their baby. Um, they turn it into a human being the second they decide to keep it. And, um, and I'm glad that they do. But, the, you know, the, 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 one of the reasons why I call myself effectively pro-life is that I hate this, I, this sort of Schrodinger schrodinger's cat definition of human life if you decide that it's a baby great if you decide that it's a human being great that did not change the biological medical ontological status of the fetus inside of you it just changed or just you know illuminated your orientation to it if you said you're not going to keep it it's still the same entity that it was that it would be if you said you weren't going to keep it and that's I think really problematic um, for the pro-choice position, but it's not just abortion. We should get off of abortion. Um, it's just a wide range of things that are actually, you know, first of all, very pro-American that you know we don't appreciate in the because you know fish don't know they're wet. We don't really understand our own culture very well. Um, but you know, ask. Ask people who grew up watching American TV whether there's an American culture, and you know they'll think it's one of the dumbest questions imaginable. You know, the, there's a whole the whole sort of 
individualism thing is huge in American popular culture. Um, the sense of adjudicating justice on your own without looking to the law or the government is huge in American culture. Um, you know, Paul Cantor talks about how the sort of pragmatic can-do spirit is alive and well in things like The Walking Dead. Uh, you can go down a very long list of, of, of things that are, that are, I would argue, on net conservative and pro-American in popular culture that just basically go straight over our heads on a day-to-day basis um, and straight over the heads of a lot of the right-wingers who talk about the relentless left-wing nature of Hollywood and popular culture is they don't, they don't factor in, their scorecard is incredibly limited and they don't factor in these sort of basic things about our culture which are not put in there for right-wing or are not put in there for left-wing reasons. They're put in there because we share a culture that is, is, is uniquely American and has, and it, by virtue of being uniquely American in the American context, that makes it more right-wing than left-wing um, because the, the right is the, you know, despite its manifest dysfunctions and, and whatever these days, Conservatism properly understood in America is the thing that says we should protect and defend American culture and American values and American institutions and all these kinds of things. And these things are, are often reflected in our popular culture in ways that we just don't pick up on. And so the, this movie, I, I very much doubt anybody in this movie thought they were making a pro-life movie, this nine days movie, but they were making a pro-life movie. And I think it's interesting that, you know, the last time a movie um, caught the attention of, of pro-lifers was I think Juno, you know, a sort of a mainstream movie that, um, and uh, mainstream and it was pretty art housey, but it caught the attention of mainstream audiences. I think that was the last movie that the pro-lifers says, Oh my gosh, look, a pro-life movie coming out of Hollywood. Um, they should latch onto this. I should send a note to Catherine Lopez and say, Hey, you guys should, should check this thing out. Um, and, and put aside, you know, again, putting aside the abortion thing, the pro-life part, just this, you know, it's so hard to say the phrase pro-life without thinking of it in terms of abortion, but pro-life means like actually make the most of your life, enjoy your life, take meaning, take meaning and sustenance from the little things that give you happiness. I mean, this was what, um, if you haven't listened to my conversation with Jonathan Adler about a week ago, he made, I, 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 I know I disappointed some bingo card holders by not getting into the, um, you know, the English garden versus the French garden stuff when he was on his riff, but I wanted to let him go. Um, he made a really just a fantastic point where I was, you know, complaining about how so many people on the right now want to get rid of traditional notions of constitutional law and jurisprudence and it's, it's results oriented and they're convinced that we never win anything. And Jonathan, who's a really brilliant and decent guy, um, he says, you know, the problem with all that is, um, how do you define victory? And if you define victory as, you know, this legislative accomplishment or this humiliation of your political opponents, um, or this, 
you know, attainment, however temporary of political power. Um, that's one argument, but it's the wrong way to look at things because real victory, enduring victory, enduring wins are lived out in your daily life. They're lived out in, you know, the ability to live your life the way you want to live, to raise your family the way you want to raise it, the, uh, the little joys and the huge joys of, of finding meaning and self-fulfillment in life. The, the pursuit of happiness is a constitutional right and it's an individual right because what, what constitutes happiness for some people constitutes an endless, joyless ass, ass ache for other people. And, um, that's what conservatism, libertarianism, you know, the right is supposed to have, that is the, uh, that is the prize it, it is supposed to keep its eyes on. And the problem is with that is that you don't, you get a lot of ribbon cutting ceremonies. There aren't a lot of trophies for that. You don't get to have a press conference for the fact that somebody in, you know, in, in international falls, Minnesota. Um, has a rich and rewarding life and sends their kid to college. Um, but that's the real win. And you get into a real sort of, you know, you know, uh, Bastiat, you know, seen and unseen thing is that we want to define victory in the kinds of things that make for clips on Fox News or MSNBC rather than clips that are in your scrapbook at the end of a rich and rewarding life. And, um, and that's what I mean by pro-life here is that, yeah, pro-life has that, you know, specific policy connotation, but it's also very much like the, you know, the Jewish Lachaim, you know, it's, it's, it is, you know, the movie is pro-life in the sense that you shouldn't waste it by sitting on your couch, playing video games. You shouldn't waste it by, um, becoming obsessed with nonsense, um, that doesn't actually affect your life and doesn't improve the lives of the people you love. And, um, so anyway, uh, speaking of wasting, I'm sorry, I just wanted to get off of that before I got all verklempt again. I, you know, I'm dropping off my kid in like 48 hours and it's, it's emotional. But so, so speaking of stuff about, you know, wasting your time on, um, I really can't emphasize enough how disgusted I am by, um, and it, it probably, you know, I should be clear about where my head is at. I'm in California. I'm with my family. It's the dog days of summer. I got this huge thing about my kid going to school and all of her emotional issues about going to school so far away and how, you know, she really is going to miss her friends and all these kinds of things. And then I'm paying attention to what is happening in Washington and Kabul and on Twitter. And I'm just so disgusted by all of it. I mean, I'm, I'm really disgusted by it. And I, I, f I was, feel like I should just sort of clarify it somewhere. And since I'm not going to write a G file, I'm just going to do it here. If you don't care about this stuff, go off, you know, uh, by all means hit stop here because, you know, and, and end with the uplifting thing about embracing life. Uh, but so where to begin? So first of all, just to restate the obvious. What we've done, what Joe Biden has done in Afghanistan, I think renders him unfit for office. 
both what he did, how he did it, and um, I should say the combination of what he did, how he did it, and how he's defending it. Um, as I've said a million times, we can, the reasonable people can disagree about whether or not we should have pulled out of Afghanistan entirely. I don't think we should have, but I don't think that's an intellectually or morally bankrupt position or anything like that. I think it's a defensible position with good points on its side. Uh, Sarah Isger makes good points. Michael Brendan Doherty has made good points about all this for a very long time. Um, I disagree with them. I think that, you know, it was, it was not just the right thing to do, but an important thing to stay for a bunch of different reasons, but we don't need to get into all that right now. Um, but if you're going to do it, if you're going to pull out, you have a profound, forget moral, the moral part is the part that I, I think bothers me the most, but you have a profound constitutional foreign policy obligation to do it in a responsible way. You know, it is, it is one thing to say, you know, I don't know, I, I, I should have thought more about an analogy here, but like, um, if the bank tells you, you know, they're going to foreclose on your restaurant, um, or, or on your business, you know, and you only have like a week to get out, uh, it's, it's fine to say, Hey, look, you know, I'm just, you know, and so you, you ding up the place and you, you scratch the walls and you do some damage getting out quickly that you otherwise wouldn't like to do, but you're like, Hey, look, you know, we had to pull out quickly and, um, there's just no way you're going to move out all of this stuff without causing some damage and, you know, losing something on the security deposit. And that's a perfectly defensible argument. And then you can argue about whether or not the specific claims, you know, or the specific damages fall under that reasonableness or not. It's quite another thing to walk around the business with a jerry can of gasoline setting, you know, pouring it over everything while there's people still in the building and setting fire to it. And then pompously saying, Hey, look, I don't, we always knew there was going to be some chaos when it came to withdrawing. Um, but you know, you know, I don't know how we could have avoided that. I mean, there's a huge distinction between these things. So Biden, yeah, Biden on the surface is absolutely right that there was a, um, there's no way to avoid, even though, again, putting aside that I think it's the wrong policy. Once implemented this, once execution on this policy started, there was no way you were ever going to avoid chaos completely. There's just a massive amount of difference between, you know, experiencing the unavoidable mess of withdrawal that would happen if it was executed perfectly with being caught with your head up your ass with tens of thousands of Americans and allied people scattered around the country, having to fear for their life to get out. Um, the way Biden has, has like thrown the Afghans under the, under the bus, denigrated them, denigrated, you know, the project that we had there denigrated the, this, the, the progress that we made there all to pretend that he's got a handle on this 
is it, it 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 makes my eye twitch. It makes me so angry. And I could I could you know like I could spend a whole nother hour on here just ranting about specific things he's lied about, he's said, or his administration has lied about and said that don't make sense, that treat the American people like they're idiots, um, all in defense of an indefensible debacle. Um, it infuriates me. Uh, what else infuriates me is the growing chorus of people on the right talking as if the worst thing we could ever possibly do is bring a single Afghan into this country um, uh, be, for whatever reason. I mean, some, some say these idiotic things about how they're, you know, oh, there must be terrorists or whatever. Some just think they're anti-American or un-American. Some are just like, ooh, foreigners, icky, or ooh, dark-skinned people, icky. Um, they're... The, the rank racism and nativism of it, I just find so grotesque. And the reason it makes me so angry isn't just the merits of it. It's that you can see the people trotting this garbage out are basically, they're A-B testing it. They're sort of, they're testing the marketplace to see, okay, I don't necessarily believe this nativist, racist, unpatriotic hogwash, um, but I think you know, my audience might. So let's test it out. Let's, you know, see. And you can see them doing it to see if they can come up with some sort of new, you know, OAN or primetime Fox niche um, issue that, you know, that enrages, you know, the, the you know, that'll sell another thousand my pillows or whatnot. And it's so mercenary and so cynical and amoral. And then when you compound it with the fact that, some of the people that we're talking about, look, I mean, if you want to have an argument about the number of refugees, I think that is a reasonable argument to have that'll annoy some of my friends. Um, but, you know, if we're talking about the difference between 10,000 and 10 million, somewhere in there, there is a reasonable argument about how many people we can take in all at once or should take in all at once. That's all fine. But I'm seeing stuff from people saying not one should be let in the country, right? Um, I'm seeing idiots talking about trading Bill Crystal for, you know, they'll let one, one refugee in if they can get them in a trade for Bill Crystal. Look, I got my differences with Bill Crystal, but this is grotesque stuff. Some of these people, some of these people risk their lives and their family lives for a decade. Some of these interpreters killed Taliban fighters to save American lives. And to say, oh, well, but, you know, there's no difference. All Afghans are bad. We can't let this person in America is strikes me as just evil and, 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 and stupid. I mean, just unbelievably stupid. The odds of a guy who is murdering jihadi extremists to defend Americans is probably pretty low on the risk scale for turning out to be a jihadi extremist himself, particularly when he's moving hell and high water to get his family out of the country because he doesn't want his daughters to be, you know, essentially sold into sexual slavery as child brides of these illiterate goons. And um, so I find all of that disgusting. 
I find it's not disgusting, the next thing that's bothering me, but it is vexing. It is annoying. The, the riot of, oh, if Trump were in charge, none of this would have happened. If Trump were in charge, um, we would have gotten every single one of these people out right away, all this kind of stuff. You know, if Trump was in charge, we would have a different policy. Now, look, some of these claims are defensible to one extent or another. I actually don't think the Trump administration would have screwed this up as badly as the Biden administration screwed it up. First of all, it's hard for me to see how you could screw it up worse than the Biden administration has screwed it up. So there's a certain floor of screw uppery that um, cannot be best beaten. And I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. I mean, I think there are Americans who are, who are affirmatively being held hostage already. Um, uh, but moreover, Trump, you know, hated to see, hated to seem weak. Seeming weak was his great, among his greatest fears. There are all these, you know, quotes and reports and tapes and conversations about how weakness, seeming weak, is the greatest sin of a politician or a statesman. Not that Trump was a statesman. And so I think, you know, to the extent this whole thing makes Biden look weak, Trump would have done things to prevent him looking as much, as, as weak as Biden does. He would have, you know, he would have bombed people. I mean, and I would have supported him for it. But a couple things, you know, first of all, the idea that Trump wouldn't abandon allies is garbage. Um, or at least he wouldn't that they wouldn't abandon Muslim allies is garbage. He abandoned the Kurds, right? He he wrote off the Kurds, and and didn't think twice about it. The idea that he wouldn't write off large numbers of Afghans in a similar way, I just don't believe. Second, he had the same policy as the Biden administration. He wanted to bug out a month ago. He was bragging about how he made. He got this process rolling and made it impossible for Biden not to bug out. And so for some of the people saying how, you know, you know, we would never have let the Taliban get in charge if um, if Trump were in office. That's nonsense. Like it was it was Mike Pompeo and Donald Trump who recognized the Taliban, who signed an agreement with the Taliban. It was Pompeo who went on national frickin' TV and said that the Taliban would help us fight and destroy Al-Qaeda side by side with us, which is insane. Al-Qaeda is essentially the international wing of the Taliban. Read some Tom Jocelyn on this stuff. I mean, it was all nonsense. It was all gaslighting. And, um, and, so, to, and, and like, so this argument that somehow if, if Trump were in charge, none of this would be happening. And that, you know, what people are doing is they are... Um, conflating all sorts of different issues. Biden and Trump had the same strategic policy. I think Trump would have executed this policy better, though at the same time, it is worth remembering that some of the things that were fatal about the Biden policy were also fatal about the Trump policy, starting of which was the withdrawal date. As, as, as Robert Kagan and others have pointed out, if you wanted to buy the Afghan government some time, don't pull U.S. troops out at the beginning of the fighting season. 
You know, the Afghans, what they do, or the, the Taliban, what they do is they go hang out in Pakistan. They finish growing their poppies. They get, they get their poppies and their heroin to market. And then they go fight in the spring and summer. And then during the winter, they go back to their little houses in Pakistan and they, they do the cycle all over again. And uh, so pulling U.S. troops out at the beginning of the fighting season is an idiotic idea. Trump wanted to do it on May 1. Biden ended up doing it um, later in the year, but, not, but, but, but the Taliban were already out and deployed. Um, if, if you wanted to buy the Afghan government even six more months, um, you, the withdrawal date should have been February, you know, or, you know, something like that. Wait, so the, the snows just made it difficult for this to happen. Um, and also the main reason why I don't think this would have been as bad under Trump is that Trump was less Trumpy than Biden in the sense that Trump would often, not always, as in with the Kurds, but Trump would often cave to the military and to his advisors who would talk him out of things. Um, and he would circle back on them, you know, six months later and try again, all that kind of stuff, or he would fire everybody and replace them with yes people. But he would wimp out routinely with advisors and with the generals and whatnot. Biden didn't do that. He stuck to his guns. He was more, quote unquote, manly in the American surrender than Trump would have been. And the idea that, oh, this would have all gone so wonderfully under Trump because Trump was a better planner. I just I, I, that just feels like some weak sauce to me. All right. So anyway, I could go on about all of these various things. So anyway, the other night. Looking in, in, in despair at all of this crap. Um, I tweeted something along the lines of, I can't remember a time I have been more, um, you know, I've had more contempt or more disappointment or more disdain. I can't remember what the exact words were for both parties and the bases of both parties. I should have added and the media outlets that run interfe interference for both, but whatever. I stand by it. I don't apologize for it in the slightest, you know, that I wrote it. Um, um, and, you know, a bunch of people, usual suspects, went berserk on me, um, talking about how this proved I was an elitist, I was a neocon, um, I'm a snob, I have contempt for the American people, nah, nah, nah. all horse as far as I can tell. Um, first of all, I'm coming up on the 400th episode of a podcast called The Remnant. How much more open can I be about how I feel like I am um, um, outside the main currents of American politics and American conservatism these days? Um, you know, how many more times do I got to talk to you about Albert J. Nock to, for this to come clear? And I understand that the people who listen to this podcast probably weren't the ones bebopping and scatting on me on Twitter, but you get the point. Um, but there are a couple things I found kind of really interesting to think about in all of this. This idea that, you know, it was interesting. It was sort of like, remember when Hillary Clinton used the word deplorable to describe half of Trump voters? I thought it was a dumb political thing. I thought it was a fairly deplorable thing for a presidential candidate to say. I don't think it was like 
one of the greatest crimes of the 20th century, the way some or 21st century, the way some people treated it. But it was dumb and bad and 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 political fair game for the the MAGA types to get pissed off about and turn into a badge of honor. Um, I would have more respect for them if they didn't actually, if some of them didn't actually lean into the idea that they should be deplorable people. But that's a conversation for another day. What I think what clearly bothered a bunch of people was this idea that I should have contempt or scorn or disappointment in uh, or just harsh criticism of the base of the Republican Party. Most of this crap came from the right. And what I think is fascinating about this is that the response from people, both on Twitter and on email, and actually these days in conversations, is that there is this unchallenged assumption that has been nurtured for a very long time on the right, that the base of the Republican Party, however you want to define it, that's the real America right there. Those are the real Americans. And um, I'm sure there's a parallel sort of thing on the left, um, um, but they care much less about the concept of being real Americans and more about the concept of being the most committed to social justice or whatever. But there is this idea that like being the base of the Republican Party is a kind of identity, right? It's like you're, it's like a class or a race or something like that. It's a tribe. And to express contempt for that segment is to reveal yourself as some sort of anti-American or elitist snob. And I just screw that. I think that's nonsense. First of all, um, you know, as I pointed out to some people on Twitter, I, you know, I've been writing against populism for 20 years. It used to make, used to, used to get all, you know, plaudits and hazanas from all sorts of people on the right, my position on, on populism. Um, there is this whole, you know, it, it pops up every, what, six weeks where, you know, Mike Lee or somebody will say, you know, we're a republic, not a democracy, you know, and the word democracy doesn't appear in the constitution and blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. And forget that it's bad historical political analysis because um, um, to say you were a Republican, small r Republican or in favor of a republic back when in the founder's time meant you were for democracy. It meant you were for um, popular, you know, sovereignty, you know, and you can have arguments about how to express it and what kind of suffrage you have and all that kind of stuff. But like the small D Democrats were the small R Republicans back then. And, um, but now we use this phrase Republican to have some sort of, sort of, you know, sort of the Burkean English garden system that is not subject to the rule, to not subject to the passions of the mob or the masses and all of that. And I agree with that. I support that notion of republicanism. Um, I've probably written about it more than, you know, a lot of people, let's just say. Um, totally down with that. I think the Bill of Rights is the best part of a constitution, the best part of our system of government. I think this, this whole idea of, of 
the anti-majoritarian elements of classical liberalism, I think are very valuable and important and sacred. And we should, you know, depending on which ones we're talking about, uh, we should do, we should move heaven on earth to defend them. That's all fine. And, you know, I've been making these jokes about how, you know, in a pure democracy, 51% of the people can pee in the cornflakes of 49% of the people for 25 years. Um, so I, I get all of that. What is amazing to me is how quickly so many people on the right, and I, I watched this very closely starting in 2015, how it turns out that all of those arguments, which, you know, I'm sure, um, you know, wow, Prager University video watchers and, and Hillsdale conference attendees all agree with all of that the way I do. But the thing is, is the second that exact same kind of argument is applied to the populist base of the GOP, panties start getting bunched like they were vices. How can you say that? How could you be on the, you know, you know, uh, how can you be such an elitist, you know, or it's such a neocon, you know, don't you understand that they're giving an authentic voice to the nation and the people and eh, bull****. It's the same problem, whether it's on the right or the left. And the problems have gotten worse in the age of social media and cable TV news because so much of that supposed like yeoman, Republican, Democratic, small D Democratic feedstock in our Tocquevelian system has been monetized and digitized into being a customer base. And they're constantly testing to see what that customer base wants to hear. And that customer base is like a heroin addict that constantly needs a bigger dosage. And they're demanding more and more from these millionaire demagogues, nastier and nastier ideas, just to give them that frisson of, of, of radicalness and rebelliousness. And I think it's screwing up the Republican Party. I think the way the Republican Party and a lot of conservative media cater to the idea that you got to hear both sides on how the election was stolen and, you know, uh, pernicious people like uh, Steve Bannon saying that, you know, I've talked to all the private equity guys and not a one of them thinks it's mathematically possible that Biden won. These guys are undermining America. They're undermining conservatism. And they're doing it to make millions of dollars. And yet, if I criticize their customer base, that shows what an elitist I am. Okay, then I'm an elitist. Who gives a rat's ass? But um, I don't think that these, the people that we're talking about, and look, there are plenty of wonderful, decent people in the Republican base and in the Democratic base. I, I know this. That's fine. But the people, the tails that are wagging the dog, that are forcing, you know, Kevin McCarthy to be more tolerant of racists and crackpots in the GOP conference than he is of people like Liz Cheney. Those people are making the country worse. And to the extent that those people constitute the base of the party and the core market that all these people want to do fan service for, then I'm going to criticize them. And I don't care what their numerical status is. I don't care how many of them are. They're doing, they're making the country a worse place. And I can make the exact same thing. I can make it, it's not the exact same argument because there are different cultural norms and, and, and priorities in place. 
But I can make a remarkably similar argument about vast swaths of the left-wing base, of the Democratic base. And I've been doing that on this podcast week in and week out for years now. You know, I mean, the, the, the way the Democratic Party caters to the Latin X crowd and the defund the police crowd, they're making the country worse. They're hurting liberalism. They're hurting the Democratic Party. And one of the places where the Venn diagram of these two bases overlap is this new isolationist jackassery that is taking over. And the thing is, is like, I've always had a problem with isolationism. I don't like isolationism. I disagree with isolationism. But at least the isolationism of, of even Pat Buchanan, never mind J.T. Flynn and all those guys from you know the 1930s and 40s, Charles Beard and whatnot, at least those guys were isolationists for the, the, the legitimate sort of Adams and Washingtonian reasons of thinking that America was a special place and we shouldn't undermine it by getting too involved in things going on in, in Europe and, and all of that. There was, you know, the old isolationism thought America was wonderful and wanted to keep it that way. The new isolationism um, does not work on those premises, right? And the Trumpian isolationism says that we're, um, you know, we kill a lot of people too, and we're being played for suckers. And, um, you know, those guys who fought in World War I, you know, you know they were all, you know, idiots. Um, that's not what isolationism used to be. That's just robust cynicism. Um, and the isolationism of the left is, is very close to the same thing. It's this anti-American, who are we to tell the world how to live? Who are we to judge these other countries? Who are we to interfere? Who are we to say that, you know, the, 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 the Iranians don't have a better way of thinking about things? You know, we have so much to atone for, for our colonial, blah, 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 blah. The isolationism of the, that's prominent on the left and the right these days is, is so much worse than the isolationism that, you know, was a problem on the right for the last half century. And um, anyway, I, I, obviously I can go on about all of this, but my point is, is that the status of being the base of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party does not mean you are a more authentic or better American than the people who are not part of those bases, right? The, it, there's something fundamentally un-American that thinks that the most politically committed, the most passionate about using Washington to impose their vision on the rest of the country, that those people are the highest, best representatives of the common American citizen. It's just not true factually. It's not true morally. And, um, and I think it is sort of fascinating to see how many people sort of were shocked for me to suggest that I could actually have contempt for their customer bases. Because I think there are an enormous number of people out there who have organized their lives around telling their customer bases what they want to hear. And that is you know, the customer is always right is the first rule in a lot of punditry these days, a lot of right-wing commentary these days is, is, you know, 
the one thing you can't do is criticize the person clicking on our site. So, and, and I think there are a bunch of people who have so internalized that because it has helped their careers. It has gotten them famous. It has gotten them on TV, uh, that they have so internalized that, that they actually think there's something morally wrong with doing it. And there's not, you know, as I wrote, I think in 2007, there's a certain math to politics that is idiotic, right? It says, you know, you're allowed to call one person an idiot. You're allowed to call 10 people, 10 idiots. But the second you get to a million idiots, then all of a sudden they become a constituency and you have to represent them. It's like, what was it? What was it? Roman Huska, who was a, um, Oh God, I can't remember. Was he the Supreme Court nominee or the senator who defended it? Anyway, there's this, there's a famous line, which I'm going to completely butcher, where uh, I think Nixon nominated somebody for the Supreme Court. And uh, and it, it was it was commented upon in the Senate hearings that he was a remarkably mediocre intellect. And some senators said, look, I think mediocre people deserve representation on the Supreme Court, too. Um. There's a big part of that going on in American politics these days. And um, I thought I had been remarkably clear that I don't want to be part of it. And um, obviously, I agree more with Republicans than Democrats on pretty much everything, you know, outside of, say, Donald Trump's fitness for office or something like that. Um, uh, but the, oh, and so that, yeah. I, I should back up. Part of the reason why I got into this crap on Twitter in the first place is an enormous number of people who I think are idiots, um, including this Nan Hayworth, this one-time congresswoman from New York, um, they want to, and, and people who used to be sort of Twitter friends of mine who now spend their time dunking on me, uh, they want to blame this fiasco in Afghanistan on me and people like me because I wasn't supportive enough of Donald Trump. and. Um, I could go on another 20 minute tear about this, but I'll be brief. Again, Trump had the same policy as Biden. He might've, he probably would have executed it marginally better than Biden, but I thought Trump was wrong on the policy. Everyone is now saying the Taliban would have inevitably taken over the country anyway. Um, I think that would have happened under, if Trump had gotten another term, yeah, we would have gotten more Americans out. That's not a trivial thing but I still think it's a bad policy. Moreover, and more succinctly, the idea that I should now be full of regret because Donald Trump wasn't reelected and this is the guy who tried to steal a U.S. election, um, essentially commit an internal coup, but was too inept and too cowardly to pull it off, but certainly tried, who inspired a riot um, and let it unfold in the hopes that somehow other people would fight for him to steal an election that he lost. But somehow I should like be losing sleep that he isn't president right now, I think is just morally grotesque, right? Trump's behavior after he lost the election was, again, I think impeachable. And there's nothing that 
Biden could do or say, literally nothing that he could do or say that would change my objective understanding of who Trump was and why he was unfit for office. There is plenty that Biden can do or say that would make me think he is unfit for office and he's already done it. I think he's not up to the job. I think it would be better for the country if he resigned. Um, I am appalled by his behavior. Um, but that does not mean I admire Trump's behavior in, in the slightest. And, um, and the idea that somehow the, the sort of MAGA boob bait crowd, much of, I, I am sure that if this unfolded under Donald Trump in much the same way as unfolded under Joe Biden, a lot of these people would be defending Donald Trump. A lot of these people would be saying, you know, uh, this was unavoidable. This was inevitable. Um, some wouldn't, to be sure. But uh, a lot of people have proven, have proved over four years, that they are willing to defend. Um, they were willing to defend virtually anything Donald Trump did and blame it on other people. Um, and the idea that they wouldn't be doing a lot of that right now if we are in the second term of a Trump administration and Afghanistan were undergoing similar chaos, I just find utterly unpersuasive. All right. So anyway, I'm done. My phone is ringing. I got things I got to do. Um, I'm going to spend some more quality time with my family. Thank you for letting me rant about all this stuff. Um, I fly back Tuesday, so we're going to try and figure out how we do the Tuesday recording. I might have a guest host. Um, I might record something in advance. I just don't know. And, um, and, uh, and look, thank you to the dispatch audience and the remnant listeners. Uh, there's a lot of disputationists and, and acrimony these days in the comments section. And I get it. I, 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 I hear some of the criticism and I take some of it to heart. I reject a lot of the arguments, um, for reasons that I've laid out in print and elsewhere. Uh, but the basic decency of the, of, of, of our subscribers and the people who want to, um, who at least appreciate, you know, where I'm coming from on this, I, I, I'm deeply grateful for. And, um, uh, and I know that there are strong feelings, um, out there on all sides of a lot of this stuff and that's all fine. And, uh, so I'm not going to go into some sort of long hypocritical thing about, uh, praising the customer base after I just denounced the customer, just denounced, uh, flattering the customer base. Um, but I will say that, you know, even with the dispatch, uh, the customers are not always right. They may be right about subscribing, which I would really appreciate if you could do. But, uh, you know, if you read the comments section, uh, they're not all right because there's an enormous amount of disagreement about some really profound things. And, um, and I appreciate those who try to keep it civil and polite and respectful of each other. And I'll be respectful of you guys, um, as best I can. So with that, uh, thanks for listening. Apologies for the rantiness and, um, I'll see you next time.